Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. Today, we will be talking about the heavenly kingdom of the Great Ming Shun. And with a name like that, you can expect a good story, so let's get into it. The year was 1894, and China, then officially known as the Great Qing, was in the heat of the First Sino-Japanese War. The specifics of this war aren't important for our story today. All you need to know is that the so-called Great Qing was losing battle after battle to the Japanese, who had literally just become a modern nation. While this was extremely humiliating to the Chinese, it's not a very surprising thing to see looking back at it. The Qing dynasty had been in power for over 250 years by this time. A longevity like this can only be achieved when a monarchy is powerful, and the Great Qing was powerful, but their prosperity had resulted in imperial functions beginning to atrophy. By the time of the Sino-Japanese War, the empire was decadent, and its military had fallen behind. So as I said, the year was 1894, and the people of China were being utterly humiliated. One young man gathered together with some friends in Honolulu, and came up with a plan. This young man was Sun Yat-sen, and the plan was called the Revive China Society. Sun Yat-sen is a man who needs no introduction for those familiar with this part of Chinese history, but for those who are new, here's what you need to know. Sun Yat-sen was a Chinese revolutionary leader. At this point in history, he was exiled from China, hence his presence in Hawaii, but he would eventually return and become known as the father of the Republic of China. In other words, he's the George Washington of Taiwan, whose official name is the Republic of China. When Sun and his allies formalized the Revive China Society, they did so with three key tenets. One, expel the Tatar rebellions. Two, revive Hua Jia. And three, establish a unified government. Now, if you're not a Chinese person from the 19th century, two of those probably meant nothing to you, and I was in the same boat until about two minutes ago, but I'll do my best to explain it. 1. Expel the Tatar Barbarians The people of China are overwhelmingly ethnic Han Chinese, but the Qing imperial family were Manchu, which Sun mistook for Tatars, which is actually a wholly different ethnic group. The Manchu made up less than 1% of the national population, so it made a lot of Han people very angry that they were not only in power, but leading China down a path of destruction as well. The barbarian part of Tatar barbarians comes from the fact that the Manchu were a Tunguzic people, which is an ethnic family that originally hails from Siberia, well outside the borders of China. So, from a Han nationalist perspective, a tiny group of foreigners was intentionally leading glorious China down a path of ruin. 2. Revive Hua Jia Jia was the name of the legendary ethnic Han state ruled over by the legendary emperor Yu the Great. And by legendary, I don't mean it in the Barney Stinson way, I mean it in the they-only-existed-probably-a-little-bit way. Hua, meanwhile, literally translates to flower, but here it's used to mean beauty. So, revive Huajia literally means bring back the once great Han nation. And three, establish a unified government. They wanted to establish a unified government. 
So, with their guiding principles established, the revived China society made the big move from Hawaii to Hong Kong, which is probably a good thing since they were looking to overthrow the Chinese government and not the Hawaiian one. Upon their arrival in Hong Kong, Sun and his leadership met with the leaders of another revolutionary faction called the Fu Ren Literary Society. The Fu Ren Literary Society had been founded three years prior by Tsai Tai and Yung Ku Wan. Surprisingly enough, these two rebel factions actually got along well, which doesn't usually happen in civil wars and uprisings. They got along so well, in fact, that they combined forces, making their two small factions into one significant rebel force. Jung was now president of the revived China society, with Sun Yat-sen as his secretary. So, in 1895, the revived China society got down to business and set up a rebellion in Hong Kong. Unfortunately, the plans leaked, and 70 members were arrested by the imperial government before anything could happen. But that's okay. The society still had their revolutionary fervor, so they could try again. Except for the fact that the imperial government worked with the British forces in Hong Kong to hunt down and exile the society's leadership, including Jung and Sun. That was a bit of a hiccup. With Jung and Sun gone, and the first attempt at revolution a complete failure, the revived China society kind of started to wilt. It didn't die completely, but the momentum was gone, so it certainly wasn't gaining the support that it once had. One of the only reasons that it didn't die completely was because of a man I had mentioned earlier, Tsai Tsan Tai. Though he didn't have a primary leadership role in the revived China society at the moment of the failed rebellion, he was the co-founder of the earlier Fu Ren Literary Society. So when Jung and Sun were exiled, he stepped into the power vacuum. But even with their new leader, the revived China society was a shell of what it once was. They sat in relative dormancy for a few years, until a catalyst reignited Tsai's revolutionary fervor. By October of 1900, Sung and Yun's five-year forced exile had expired, and the two men had returned to China. They wasted no time reacquainting themselves with the countryside or anything like that. On October 8th, Sun and Yung led an army of more than 20,000 revolutionaries in an attack on Huizhou, a city on the southern coast of the Chinese mainland. Unfortunately, Sun and Yung were relying on support from Taiwan, which was presently under Japanese control. So when the Prime Minister of Japan forbade them from conducting their revolutionary activities on his soil, they were forced to disband their army. And this failed rebellion ended in a bit of a larger disaster than the first had. Yung Ku Wan had been captured and was subsequently put to death by the Qing government. Yung and Sei had been friends for a very long time, so Sei now sprung back into action. He reached out to two key allies. Li Keitong and Hong Quan Fu. Li Keitong was an extremely wealthy land magnate and one of the richest people in Hong Kong. Hong Quan Fu, meanwhile, had been one of the leaders of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, which was a rebel state set up decades earlier. With their combined financial backing and rebel experience, Tsai Tsan Tai was hopeful that his rebellion would be the one that really worked. On August 14, 1901, Tsai, Li, and Hong gathered together in Tsai's apartment in Hong Kong and set up a plan. 
As they began to grow in numbers, the three leaders began reaching out to the triads of Hong Kong, which are just Chinese mafias, and looked to them for military support. By the time everything was all said and done, the rebels had multiple outposts set up across China's southern Guangdong province, and the veteran Hong Kwan Fu was the general of southern Guangdong, serving under Liang Muguang, a triad leader and their new commander-in-chief. The plan was to blow up the emperor's temple in Guangdong, killing any imperial officials inside and opening a window for the rebels to take over the city of Canton from which they would spread their revolution and overthrow the emperor. Tse and his men planned for years until they decided on the date of January 28, 1903, the Chinese New Year's Eve. The day finally came, and since it was New Year's Eve, there were many officials gathered in the temple to celebrate. The bomb went off, and many inside the temple died in the explosion, as planned. The heavenly kingdom of the great Ming Shun was thus established, and the rebellion was on. Tse and his men moved in to take the city of Canton, but then something happened. The police were waiting for them. Not only were the police waiting for them, but some of the rebels were being detained while they were still en route to their destinations. It was almost like the police knew their every move before they even made it. So here's what happened. I don't know who it was, but someone in on the rebellion had leaked information to imperial officials before the bomb had even gone off. Now, I'm not blaming the triads per se, but organized crime syndicates don't really seem like the most trustworthy groups to me, that's all I'll say. This was made worse by the fact that Li Keitong didn't do his job. He ordered shipments of arms and ammunition into Hong Kong, but then he didn't send the money in time. When the merchants saw unpaid shipments of enough weapons to arm a small army, they alerted the police as well, and this really let the imperial government know that something was going on. Over the next few days, everything fell apart for the Heavenly Kingdom. The police raided their outposts across Guangdong, and dozens of rebel leaders were arrested. Within three days, all of the rebels had been either arrested, exiled, or fled, and so the heavenly kingdom of the great Ming Shun ceased to exist by January 31st, 1903, giving it a lifespan of just three days, which I think is probably the shortest we've covered on this show so far. So why was the heavenly kingdom of the great Ming Shun forgotten, even when it had a really cool name? Well, for one, there is the fact that it lasted only three days. That's effectively a long weekend, even if a rebellion or a state had been set up and fallen within a long weekend in the modern day, most people wouldn't hear about it. So it's really no surprise that no one heard about it a hundred years ago or more. Then there's also the fact that the Heavenly Kingdom of the Great Ming Shun is usually referred to not as its own movement, but as a single moment in the lead-up to the much larger 1911 revolution in China. In this context, it's not even called its own state, it's just called the Great Ming Uprising. The 1911 revolution was a much larger and more successful affair. It was that revolution that actually ended up toppling the imperial system entirely and establishing a republic in China. So it's not really so surprising that these little lead-up moments sort of just get clumped together as like a prequel series for what would eventually become a successful revolution. 
of course, saying his men didn't see their movement as a prequel to a successful one. They were trying to actually launch the successful one themselves. But that's not how people usually look at history, unfortunately. And so the heavenly kingdom of the great Ming Shun has been forgotten, largely. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to me on. It would really help the show spread and grow a larger fan base. And if you don't like the show, please don't leave a review. Uh, Thank you, and I will see you again next week.